You know, every single time we meet together on Sunday is a hallelujah to the resurrected Jesus. When I was uh, pastoring a little church in northern Iowa, uh, I used to look up in the hymnal uh, in the index for resurrection for all the songs on Jesus raising from the dead. I think every single song that we ever sing, be it on the board or in a hymnal, ought to have some element of the resurrection. We're celebrating it every time we come together. So with that in mind, let's keep celebrating as we open up the Word of God to Genesis chapter 29, and we, continu- we con- continue in the series, The Faith of Our Fathers. Um, I frequent the gym, probably not as often as I ought to, but I go there actually often enough. And there are personal trainers. Anybody ever had a personal trainer? Raise your hand if you have. You know what they are, right? They, we, we pay them. We pay these guys. I haven't had one, by the way. Probably could use one, but... Uh, uh, we pay these guys to put together uh, a regimen for us that's specifically designed for us and for nobody else so that we can, you know, lose weight, look better. I mean, you can always tell the ones who are there for the first time, right? Uh, it takes them about 15 minutes to be exhausted. They don't know how to use the equipment. But hopefully, if they hang in there, uh, they'll see some really good results. I think that every one of us that are here in this room need to get to a place in our life where we are willing to submit to our divine personal trainer who wants to whip us into shape. And if he does whip us into shape, and he does do so, it takes a lot of time, and we start to look a little bit more like Jesus. And so here's the challenge to you as we look at the life of Jacob, who is a really, he's a piece of work for sure, right? But he's also a work in progress. Genesis chapter 29. Jacob, if you've been with us, he's fresh off, a great experience with God. But he's still a deceiver. He still has fat that needs to be trimmed, so to speak. The deceiver, however, is about to be deceived. He has learned from that Jacob's ladder experience in the last chapter that God is with him. No small thing. But was he with God? That's the question. The opening phrase in chapter 29 goes like this. Then Jacob went on his journey. And literally the Hebrew says Jacob lifted up his feet. It's an unusual expression. Carries the idea he's got pep in his step. He's got joy that he didn't have before. And the reason he has this is because he's just had this experience where he saw the Lord at the top of that stairway and God is with him. His fear has, has been turned to joy. He's off to the land of his mother and his grandfather uh, for safety, for sure, because he's on the run. Hopefully, find a wife in the process. It's a long trip, 400 miles, almost to be exact. Probably figures he'll be there for a couple of months, let Esau blow off some steam, and then get a wife, and make his way back. Those couple of months would turn out to be 20 years, which is part of our lesson for today. I think that God will bruise a man before he'll use a man. And as Oswald Chambers said much more famously, before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. But for now, Jacob is on the move. 
He's got pep in his step. He's no doubt heard from his mother, Rebecca, of what happened when the servant of, of Abraham, if you've been with us in this series, the experience he had when he came looking for Rebecca. Remember, he came to the well. He'd been praying all the way, prayed very specifically. God answered his prayer to the T. And remember, the servant declared at the end, as for me being on the way, the Lord what? The Lord led me. What a great testimony. And I'm sure Rebecca told Jacob all about that. And now uh, he makes it to the area, to this very area around Haran, and he, he himself comes to a well, very much, very much uh, like the servant of Abraham before. He comes there, and uh, you know, he got these lazy shepherds sort of uh, laying around. He, he interacts with them a little bit, uh, finds out that uh, they, they, they actually know Laban. They said, do you know Laban? That's my, that's my uncle. Yeah, we know Laban. Laban. In fact, uh, that's his daughter coming right now with the sheep. And suddenly, Jacob sees this divine providence occurring. But I've got to, I've got to tell you something. As we get into the text, there is a conspicuous absence of prayer. Never does he personally talk to God. In fact, even when he gives a testimony, there's no record of him saying anything about God, his leading, the divine providence, and, and this, is, this is what makes me wonder. Because Jacob has already had a glorious experience with God. God is walking with him. But will he walk with God? That is the question here. And so we're going to jump into the text. He's, having, he's talking to these lazy shepherds. Their flocks are all around and when they tell him that Laban's daughter is coming and he sees that providence is at work, he basically tries to shoo these shepherds away. It doesn't really work because in the midst of it, verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. I mean, what a guy won't do to impress his girl. I mean, this stone, if you look at the text here, it took a couple of people, maybe several, to move this stone away. He does it all by himself. Now, he might have been a mommy's boy and a domesticated one, but he was no wimp. And like I said, nothing like wanting to impress your girl. And so verse 11 says, then Jacob, because he just sees what God is doing, although he doesn't mention God, kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, enter Laban at this point, because Laban, this is, this is a, this Laban is a risky rat money monger is what he is. And we're going to see this come out in the text. Well, verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So there you go. Verse 15. Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, here you have this, this setup. This really brings us to the most dramatic part of this drama with the introduction of not just Rachel from afar, but Rachel and her sister Leah, beginning in verse 16. Watch this. 
Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. Her name means cow. I just thought I'd throw it out for what it's worth. And the name of the younger is Rachel. She means, her name means ewe lamb. Watch this. Leah's eyes were weak. The Hebrew carries the idea of lacking sparkle. But Leah was beautiful in form and appearance. Here's the deal. You got two sisters. One is homely. I mean, it, it doesn't mean she's out of shape or anything. She just, in fact, I don't think she was out of shape. The, rec, the account indicates she probably wasn't out of shape. She just wasn't very pretty. Rachel was a flat-out knockout. And Jacob is completely smitten by the beauty, the ravishing beauty of Rachel. So smitten that there is a greater deceiver on the spot. It's Laban. And he's about to take advantage of Jacob's smittenness, if I could coin a term. Because Laban, too, is a deceiver, and he's been at it a lot longer than Jacob, whose very name means deceiver. Verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So here's the deal. Back in ancient times, uh, a bride's father was given a gift, usually a monetary gold, silver, something like that in exchange for the daughter. Now, Jacob doesn't have any money with him, so he barters for his service. And he says, I'll serve you for seven years, which most Bible uh, commentators think is like twice the price. But he doesn't care. He's going to get his prize. He's going to get his treasure. He's going to get Rachel. He goes way over the top. Now, I want you to notice very carefully because words have meaning and they really have meaning in Bible times. So very carefully notice how Laban responds to Jacob, verse 19. It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Notice what he doesn't say to Jacob. He doesn't say, deal. No, he very carefully crafts his words because he's a greater deceiver than even his future son-in-law. And so he gets the bride price together, and, uh, and, and Jacob doesn't matter because he is completely infatuated. Verse 20, some of you have seen this verse, you love this verse, but let's look at it. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because he had love for her. Oh, isn't that nice? Of course, the idea is that time passed quickly, but it also the, the verbiage here carries the idea that in his mind, this is a treasure worth biding my time for. That's the idea in this whole passage. Of course, he has no idea what's about to hit him. He has no idea that his future father-in-law is scheming to hold on to his daughters while wrapping his own life up for an additional seven years. That's on top of the seven years he's already spent to get Rachel, so a total of 14. That's another 364 weeks, 2,555 days. But while his unscrupulous father-in-law was scheming, his father in heaven was ruling, like he always does, by the way. All of this is God's design in the making of the man. Verse 21. This is, there's a big leap here. It says, then 
Jacob said to Laban, when is then? You can write, if you're right, you're right. Seven years later. We're not told anything. We're not told what happened during those seven years. The next verse, we jump ahead seven years. All we can tell from the text is Jacob is fed up with his father-in-law. He's seen enough of the garbage he's been spewing forth and doing to him. So it says, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Not a real respectful way to talk to your father-in-law. So he's seen enough. He's fed up with his ways. He's already paid, paid twice the price. He even has to initiate the ceremony. It should have been Laban who came to Jacob and said, hey, let's, let's get this thing done. But no, Jacob has to do it. But Laban is ready. He's more ready than the blinded by love Jacob could have ever imagined how ready he was. In fact, as I was studying this, I was reminded of a joke I'd heard I'd come across some time ago where this uh, turtle walks into a police station and wants to file a report because he'd been mugged by several snails. The presiding officer says, well, you know, you know tell me what happened. And the turtle goes, I don't know. It all happened so fast. <laughs> now, here's the point. This drama has already stretched out seven years, and he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't see what's coming. He's so blinded by love because love is blind, or at least it can be, right? Now watch carefully verse 22. So Laban, so he goes, hey, give me my wife. I want my wife. I want Rachel. He, he just basically says, give me my wife. He doesn't even identify Rachel. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and they made a feast. But in the evening... Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Skip down to verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. How does this even happen? I mean, if you, if you try to use a little sanctified imagination here, a little veil, a little vino, and a lot of virility. I mean, this guy is, and then you could add in there the vagueness of darkness, and Laban had all he needed to make the switch from ravishing Rachel to loathsome Leah. He never knew it hit him. He'd so longed and lusted for Rachel, he had become blurred and blinded by his own passion, so much so that he went to bed with Rachel, or so he thought, and woke up with Leah. The deceiver had been deceived. You, don't miss the irony here when he comes to realize it. In the middle of verse 25, and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? I mean, just let that soak in for a moment. This is the deceiver talking. I mean, I'm wondering if he's even... Thinking in his own mind, I can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth that I'm accusing somebody else of deceiving me. If he was thinking about his own hypocrisy, he didn't have much time to think because watch Laban's reply. His reply must have landed like a two-by-four. Look at verse 26. Laban said, it's not uh, so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Wasn't that what Jacob was? Wasn't Jacob the, young, Jacob the younger of the younger than Esau? This had to be like a double dagger to his heart. 
We don't, we don't, we don't do that, Laban says. And this whole narrative leaves a lot of questions. I know your mind, some of your minds are just spinning with some of these questions right now. And it leaves a lot of questions on the table. Like, where was Rachel throughout all this? And how about Leah? Was she in on it or was she forced? I think she was in on it. And even for all of the, even for the veil and the intox, you know, being intoxicated, no doubt, and the darkness, how did he not know what he was doing? Hey, here's maybe the biggest one I would throw at you. Did Leah, listen to this, here's a question for you. Did Leah act like Rachel the way Jacob acted like Esau? Think about that one for a moment. Bottom line is we don't know. The scripture is silent. And when the scripture is silent, that's the spirit of God's way of saying, don't go any deeper than that. I don't need you to get messing around. This, it, it is what it is. We don't know. The very next verse, verse 27, says, "Complete." this is still Laban talking to Jacob, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. <laughs> Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. The week referred to here, by the way, is a, would have been the celebration after the consummation of the marriage, the family would celebrate for an entire week and the bride and groom would be t- treated literally like a king and a queen. Except Jacob must have looked more like a court jester during this time because the celebration would have been of Jacob and Leah before he would finally get Rachel and serve for many, many more years to come. I do want to draw your attention to the very first line of verse 28. Look at it. Here's what it says. Jacob did so. Do you see that? Jacob did so. That's all it says. It's like he just conceded defeat. In Laban, Jacob had met his match. The deceiver had been deceived. What else was there for him to do but to go along with the plan that made him the court jester, the fool? A plan, mind you, that would last another seven years. Now, I think it's possible because we draw back and take the 30,000-foot view here. God is doing a work in Jacob's life. And I think something is happening in the heart of Jacob. The same thing that has to happen in your heart and mine as God works in us. And it's just, in a word, it's humility. You call it sanctification, but there has to be humility in the process. A process that usually takes time. In Jacob's case, a long time, and I'm guessing in many of ours as well, right? Have you ever had a time where you, you saw your sin, but you never saw it as deep as you should have? I have. It's almost like you're peeling back that onion, and oh, you know, like days or months later, it's like, that was really bad what I did. I have a friend that's attending our church now. He's in a, youth, a really, really uh, dynamic youth ministry. But he told me his story just the other day, and uh, I just was in rapt attention as, as he told it to me. He said, six years ago, Pat, he said, my wife left me. She left me for another man, and she ended up marrying him. 
I was broken and I was broke and I was angry for what she did to me. He says, two years later, God began to reveal to my heart my, my role in the dissolution of that marriage, my sins that I had committed, the things I had done to drive my wife away. And I even wrote a letter to her and asked her to forgive me for what I did. I thought to myself, oh my goodness. The man was humiliated, but then he got humble. And that's how true repentance works, does it not? Doesn't it? Jacob, like all of us, needed to be humbled. And what better way for God to do it than for the deceiver to be deceived? He would, God would use the circumstances, shocking and, yes, disturbing though they were, to become the very means by which he would keep the process going in the making of his man, Jacob. One day, if, you know, if you're ahead in the narrative, one day Jacob, deceiver, will become Israel, prince of God. But not yet. Not yet. In a real sense, many of you have experienced this. Some of you are experiencing it right now. You make all these plans. You have all these expectations, all of these aspirations. But in the morning, it's always Leah. You never quite get what you thought. Tim Keller calls this cosmic disappointments. Oh, man, I'd say so. Others just call it life. I have a word for every deceiver out here, and I'm going, to, I'm going to guess that all of us have played this game to one degree or another. And then a concluding word. If you're a deceiver, the joke's on you. It always has been. It always will be. Now, I just want to put to rest this business that our Pastor of Counseling, Pastor Dr. Kurt DeGraff, has got this snowy white reputation, you know. Let me, he, even he can succumb to this game. In fact, I'll just tell you this. The camera doesn't lie. What you're about to see is not staged. It's what happened just the other day. That's Pastor Brad putting his bag down. <laughs> Pastor Kurtz in our audience today, let's give him a round of applause. If you're a deceiver, the joke's on you. Always has been. Always will. In fact, in verse 25, where it tells us that when, you know, Laban gave 
Leah to Jacob. And when he woke up, he, he came into her. When he woke up, it was Leah. The Hebrew literally says, behold, Leah. It's almost like a joke. Except Jacob didn't say, hey, good one, Laban. No. Because the joke was on him and it wasn't funny. It never is. By the way, there is a New Testament scripture that many of you are familiar with, but you probably don't think so much about the tail end of it. Here's how James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. And then he says what? Deceiving yourselves. Mark my words, you will never deceive anyone until you've first deceived yourself. So if you're a deceiver, the joke's on you. Secondly, you'll suffer the boomerang effect. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase. What a bad person plots against the good, boomerangs. The plotter gets it in the end, and sure enough. Notice all the ironies and parallels. As Jacob deceived his father, so his father-in-law deceived Jacob. As Jacob took advantage of his father's poor eyesight, so his father-in-law took advantage of Jacob's poor eyesight. As Jacob played the role of Esau, so Leah played the role of Rachel. And as Esau had to live with the results of Jacob's deception, so Jacob would have to live with the results of Laban's, his father-in-law's deception. Surely, deceivers will be deceived. Thirdly, you'll experience the negative. And notice I say negative because there's a positive as well. You'll, you'll experience the negative aspect of living out the laws of the harvest. The laws of the harvest are really based off of Galatians chapter 6, where Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not, he's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. But if you sow to the spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There's the positive side. When David was uh, contemplating his own life and Saul coming after him, trying to deceive him, and how God had miraculously delivered him again and again, David wrote in, in Psalm 18, he said, he said of God, he said, to the merciful, you show yourself merciful. To him who's blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. Now watch this. And to the devious, God will show himself what? shrewd. It's the law of the harvest is what it is. There are basically three laws to the harvest, and I want to remind you of what they are. You know the first one, you reap what you sow. The second law is you reap more than what you sow. And the third law is the reason why many people ignore laws one and two. You reap later than when you sow. And Jacob was experiencing the third law of the harvest, as many of you have as well, because you ignored laws one and two. But as I said, there is a positive side. If we sow to the Spirit, we will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And that requires something that Jacob didn't have, at least not yet anyway. That requires faithful patience. Faithful patience. 
That, the willingness to wait on God to lift us up. If you look at Jacob's life, he's always going ahead of God. He's always circumventing the process. He's always doing his own thing, pushing the, the birthright was already his. He had to have it his way before God would bring it about. He's always doing that. But listen to what Peter said when he says, he said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Did you hear that? That he may exalt you what? In due time. That takes patience, faithful patience. So what I want to do is I want to conclude with three humbling truths for contemplation. Here's the first one. To use you, God will bruise you. Please mark my words. I'm choosing them carefully. A bruise is not a break. Nobody dies from having a bruise. You might limp. You, you, favor, a, you favor the limb. It hurts. And some of you are bruised up here today. But it doesn't necessarily take you out of the game necessarily. Listen to how Peter again put it. He said, we rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, we are grieved by various trials, different forms and intensities of trials. Some of them are bruises. They're not all breaks. To use you, God will bruise you. And some of you are here bruised up right now. You don't like being bruised. But how about this? God bruised his son for you. That means you can trust him. He was bruised long before you were ever bruised. Jacob was bruised. Really kind of beat up. The break will come, just not yet. To use you, God will bruise you. To make you, God will break you. Jacob is not broken, but he will be. And I can stand before you and tell you that I have experienced bruising. Just the other day, I, I received a pretty deep bruise. It's been a long time since I've been broken. But God has broken me as well. And those are the times where I have my deepest experiences with God. No one prays for them. They're not the things we invite. But to make you, God will break you. Bruised and broken. Oh, by the way, didn't he break his own son? It pleased the Lord to crush him, Isaiah wrote. And if God would break his own son, you can trust him even when he allows you to be broken in the making of the man or the woman that he wants you to be. There's one more thing I want you to go on. To use you, God will bruise you. To make you, God will break you. And to grow you, God will slow you. Jacob went into this thing thinking, a couple of months, 20 years. To grow you, God will slow you. When I first became a pastor, I took over a little church of 30-some people. I didn't actually say this, but in my mind, I thought, 
I'll be here for a couple of years, and then I'll go on to bigger things. Well, God had bigger things in mind, all right, but it wasn't what I thought. It wasn't my ministry God wanted to enlarge. He wanted to enlarge my heart. In order, I had to have my heart enlarged before I could have my opportunity enlarged. And that meant I would have to be bruised and broken. What I thought would be a couple of years ended up being 12. And a devastating heartbreak toward the end of it. Then I came here. 20 years ago, started the whole thing over. I've had bruises. I've had heartaches. But the same God who, in order to make me grow, must take me slow, is still working on me like he's working on you. If you'll submit to him. To use you, God will bruise you. And some of you are bruised up right now. To make you, he will break you. And some of you are broken right now. But you can trust him. Some of you don't know him. And God has been slow. He's slow to anger. He's given you time to believe on the son, his son, who was bruised and broken for you. That's where it all begins, in the making of the person of God. Let's stand.